Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak. And today I'm speaking to Sherry and George, the author of Hate Spin, The Manufacture of Religious Offense and Its Threat to Democracy. Sherry and George is Associate Professor in the Department of Journalism at Hong Kong Baptist University. He's the author of Freedom from the Press, Journalism and State Power in Singapore, and other books. Sherry and George, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. My pleasure. Your new book is called Hate Spin, The Manufacture of Religious Offense and Its Threat to Democracy. Most of us have heard of hate speech, but how does hate spin differ from it? Well, I developed the concept of hate spin because that more familiar term, uh, hate speech, I think fails to capture the kind of hate propaganda that I've been studying. Uh, Hate speech generally refers to the vilification of an identifiable group, uh, say, based on its religion, race, uh, immigrant status, sexual orientation, and so on. Uh, It's done to incite harms, uh, such as discrimination or violence against that group. And of course, that remains a huge problem around the world still. But there's another instrument that uh, political entrepreneurs use that's related to, but I think quite distinct from, uh, conventional hate speech. And this is where agitators uh, whip up a reaction against some perceived insult. Uh, They manufacture a kind of righteous indignation against some book or video or a proposal to build a church or a mosque or a temple. Uh, And the goal is to marginalize their targets and gain publicity for their cause. Uh, So if you think of hate speech as the uh, giving of harmful offense, then this other kind of expression could be described as the strategic taking of offense. Uh, Both are powerful instruments of identity politics. They're often used in parallel. uh, And it's this two-pronged weapon that I term hate spin. But as you also point out in the book, uh, it seems that it's easier for governments and countries to legislate against those people who are instigating hate crimes as opposed to those who are instigating religious offense. Is that accurate to say? Uh, Yes, uh, certainly there's a good reason why we should distinguish between uh, hateful actions and uh, hateful speech. And, of course, the um, American jurisprudence is the most liberal when it comes to allowing uh, most forms of hate speech. Uh, And and that has to do, of course, with the role of uh, public discourse in democracy. Uh, So I agree that a strong distinction should be um, uh, made in any democracy that cares about uh, uh, openness and free speech uh, between offense, uh, which is often subjective, and um, much more objective harms such as discrimination and, of course, uh, incitement to violence. So in this, your first answer, you talk about political entrepreneurs, and that is a term you use in the book. Could you explain how these political entrepreneurs can manufacture a political crisis out of a religious insult? Yeah, I call them political entrepreneurs. You could also call them agents of hate. Uh, agitators, spin doctors, whatever. But you know, the, the key point is this, that I think in practically every large-scale sustained episode of righteous indignation that we come across, uh, you'll find these middlemen uh, playing a critical role. Um, and uh, you know, too often when we come across these incidents of outrage, um, they're framed by the media as spontaneous eruptions of anger. Uh, this is especially the case with uh, religious outrage. You know, how many times have we seen the media uh, frame such events as um, a video or a book uh, as sparking violence 
or triggering a riot. And these words uh, suggest a process that is uh, as inevitable or as natural as some chemical reaction or some law of physics. Uh, and I say that's wrong. I mean, I've quickly found out as you know when we dig uh, into these events. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, there may be genuine hurt at the individual level, um, but its escalation into major sustained episodes of political contention and argue is invariably manufactured in a very deliberate and self-serving way by these entrepreneurs. And one of the most uh, telltale signs uh, is the fact that in almost every case you look at, uh, the timing and the, the spatial distribution of these acts of outrage never quite match the appearance of the, uh, the offending book or video. Uh, often there's a time lag before the, um, the agitation starts. Uh, it often ends even though the, the cause of the offence still exists online and so on. And of course, there's a spatial uh, distribution as well. You know, if indeed, um, say, Muslims can't help but uh, you know, lose their minds at some provocation, then why is it that in only certain localities they do? Uh, you know, what's happening in the rest of the world? Uh, and these are all telltale signs that there's something far less spontaneous and natural going on here. Um, and I would argue that, you know, in the same way that uh, we would follow the money when we want to expose financial corruption, you know, I think journalists and other analysts can do a lot more to track the political interests at play here. And we need to peel back what on the surface may look like authentic expressions of public opinion and uncover the various agendas that lie beneath. Now, I think it's fair to say the first part of your book, uh, you're outlining and describing the terms that you're going to be using and analyzing just kind of, I want to say, generic cases of how this happened. But in the second half, you start getting into case studies and you pick India, Indonesia, and the United States, obviously three very large and pretty old democracies. Apart from the fact that they are large and they're democracies, were there other things that were going on within these countries that you found interesting enough to make case studies out of? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we kind of spoil for choice, right? If you're looking for examples of hate spin uh, in action, uh, well, these are the world's uh, three largest democracies. If I had time to add one more, I guess the the, the large case that uh, is crying for attention would be what's happening in Europe right now. Um, but the advantage of picking these three, other than the fact that they um, are big, um, uh, is that well, they all. Uh, constituted as secular systems. They're based on the inclusive principle of what we might call civic nationalism. Uh, but all three have been pressured by religious nationalists, uh, pushing for more exclusive identities. Um, and what's uh, interesting from a comparative point of view is that there are important uh, differences in the way they deal with offense. I mean, most obviously, you know, the U.S. is the least reliant on legal prohibitions on speech, for example. Uh, and these differences made for interesting uh, comparisons. I mean, as a set, uh, the three countries also illustrate how uh, right-wing religious intolerance is not monopolized by any one faith group. Uh, India is, of course, a Hindu-majority republic. The U.S. is majority Christian, uh, and Indonesia is the world's largest population of Muslims. So when we look at uh, majoritarian right-wing groups in each of these countries, uh, we see that there is really no limit to the human capacity to interpret any religion in a way that is self-serving, uncivil, and undemocratic. I was really fascinated about all the things with Indonesia, since I knew it is the world's largest Muslim country, and I knew that it had a reputation for 
always people always wonder well, how can it be the largest Muslim country in the world and yet seem not to really be bothered or at least the press doesn't really portray it as a country that's bothered by a lot of religious extremism uh, or, or, Islam, or Islamic radicalism. Uh, what's going on in Indonesia with regards to hate spin, particularly as you talk about in this book? Yeah, I mean, Indonesia has uh, in some ways rightly been held up uh, as an example of a successful, um, secular, tolerant republic. Uh, some of that, though, is overstated. I mean, I think there's been far too much attention uh, within both the Muslim world and more generally uh, at, um, at terrorism as an indicator. So if you look at uh, the success of regimes in combating terrorism, uh, Indonesia has been reasonably successful. They've had uh, uh, a few incidents, but they've swiftly brought uh, uh, various uh, terrorists to justice. Um, and the government defines its uh, success in dealing with um, intolerance and radicalism very much um, by how well it's doing on the terrorism front. But I argue in my book that, well, you know, there's a lot more going on in the world than just terrorism. Uh, in fact, I think it would be safe to claim that the number of lives actually affected by um, other forms of intolerance, discrimination, um, uh, pogroms of various sorts, uh, um, eviction from homes and so on, uh, is, is, is larger numbers than those actually affected by outright terror. And that's the case in Indonesia. I mean, uh, yes, it's been reasonably successful in, in combating terrorism, but its record is not very good in terms of protecting um, certain religious minorities, mainly minorities within the Muslim population. Let's talk about India. I found India also, all, through, all the three case studies are interesting, but it seemed to me that India out of the three had a situation in which the, the Prime Minister Modi and the BJP have built some electoral success on hate spin. So how does that affect them once they've gotten into power? Do, can can a uh, government continue to use those tactics once they're in power or in a situation in India where there are societal, societal powers pushing back against that, that they have to diminish using uh, scapegoating minorities? Well, yes, I mean, as you point out, um, Narendra Modi and the BJP is, a, is an alarming case of where uh, the exponents of hate spin have actually managed to seize power, um, which is not the case in uh, Indonesia, for example, and we hope won't be the case uh, in, in the US. I mean, this being just you know, a few weeks before the uh, elections there. Um, the, the best case scenario, uh, you know, before the 2014 uh, elections in India was indeed that perhaps once uh, the BJP had used uh, this kind of hate rhetoric to gain power, it would become more moderate. Uh, unfortunately, that hasn't really been the case uh, because in India, the, the uh, BJP after gaining power uh, seems to have, um, as a quid pro quo, uh, handed over the education and cultural portfolios uh, to some of the uh, most extreme uh, groups within the larger Hindu nationalist uh, family. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, policies to do with uh, education um, as well as other cultural policies have become far more extreme, uh, more extreme than uh, people had feared before the elections. 
Now, in the chapter in the U.S., you touched briefly on the Donald Trump phenomenon, but I assume that you were probably writing the book at the beginning of the American primaries. Uh, now that we're closing in on the actual election, as you mentioned when we're recording this, we're a little less than three weeks away. Has the Trump phenomenon and the Trump campaign surprised you with regards to how its rhetoric has evolved during this campaign? Well, I mean, who hasn't been taken by surprise, right? Um, I'm as alarmed as anyone at how uh, swiftly Trump appears to have uh, corrupted the norms of civility that used to be observed in uh, U.S. presidential races. But, you know, I think there have also been positive uh, signs on display. Uh, the pushback against hum, uh, Trump's uh, hate mongering by uh, media, civil society, ordinary citizens, and you know, even his own party, uh, I don't think has been negligible by any means. Uh, and I think there's still a lot the world can learn from how Americans have risen to the Trump challenge. Uh, so in contrast, I mean, in the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who was uh, much more uh, a formidable exponent of hate spin than uh, Trump, uh, Modi was given a much easier ride by India's political establishment and the media. Um, so if um, indeed Trump loses as it now uh, appears that he will, um, I mean, yes, I think it's going to be a long time before the U.S. Uh, repairs the political culture that uh, uh, that it took uh, pride in, you know, the culture of civility in public discourse more or less. Um, but I think compared with what's happening in some other open societies, uh, I think the uh, at least the Americans have shown that it is possible, without recourse to the force of law, it is possible for civic groups, media, ordinary citizens to push back firmly. So earlier in the, this interview, you talked about uh, that you could have also talked about Europe. And I know that there's been a strong resurgence of right-wing politics in Europe, particularly after... Um, the 2015 uh, entrance of uh, Syrian and Iraqi refugees into Europe. Uh, now, you didn't talk about it in the book, but is there anything in particular you're watching in Europe with regards to the same topic of hate spin? Well, um, there are various um, approaches to the balance between religion and politics that are being tried in Europe. Um, and uh, some are closer to the American model. Uh, some, like France, is, is very different. Um, from what I've seen so far, I think uh, um, the French case is a good example of what not to do. Because uh, one thing that I uh, am quite convinced about is that, look, religion can't be uh, categorized as the problem. You know, then the answer isn't to uh, gravitate towards some kind of secular fundamentalism where you declare all kinds of religious expression to be uh, incompatible with democracy. That is just not empirically true. Uh, and, and there's no reason why um, uh, religion cannot have a role in public, uh, let alone uh, private life. Um, when you do try to uh, take this hard line against religious expression of any kind, uh, inevitably, this ends up being discriminatory, uh, as you're seeing in France and some other European countries, uh, because what happens is that the religion of the majority, which tends to be seeped into the general culture and no longer seen even as religious, gets a free pass, and unfamiliar religions, uh, basically the religions of uh, new immigrants and other minorities, um, are penalized. Uh, the, the American approach I find far superior. 
which is to put, first and foremost, uh, religious equality uh, as a fundamental principle. Um, I think one of the learning points for me looking at these various cases around the world that, is that maybe we should not even be that focused on speech, you know, what people say, uh, how offensive it is, uh, because if you can instead focus on anti-discrimination, uh, if you can guarantee um, religious liberty, the right to express one's faith, uh, much of the problem of offense is taken care of. Uh, arguably, um, most of the reaction against things like, um, uh, you know, caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in Europe and so on aren't, well, they have on the surface been reactions against expression. But of course, we know that uh, they are also a symptom of uh, a sense of discrimination, of real discrimination faced by um, immigrants, in particular Muslim immigrants. Charian George, the author of Hate Spin, the Manufacture of Religious Offense and its Threat to Democracy. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thank you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget the MIT Press can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.